Hey there, and welcome to a special LGBT plus edition of the Vassals of Kingsgrave. My name is Duncan, also known as Valkyrist on the internet, and the audio I'm about to play is taken from a public talk I recently delivered about the history of queer cinema. The presentation includes a range of movie clips, which I'll provide links to in the episode show notes. I hope you enjoy it, and happy Pride Month! Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming. This is a wonderful turnout. I'm thrilled. Today, I'll be presenting a brief history of LGBT representation in movies. Uh, the initials LGBT stand for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. The term was first used by human rights activists in the 1980s and functions as an umbrella term for the diverse spectrum of human sexuality and gender identity. In subsequent years, additional letters have also been added, such as I for intersex and A for asexual people. The variation LGBT plus is commonly used in the 21st century. Um, I wrote this presentation in uh, celebration of Pride Film Festival, which is a local annual festival that screens contemporary and classic LGBT plus themed feature length and short films. And it is represented by Stephen here, who will uh, tell you a bit about the festival afterwards. Um, the 2022 festival is running from April 1st to the 10th with screenings held at the Pivotonian Cinema, Village Cinema and online um, and there's some leaflets available on chairs if anyone's wishing to attend or support the program. Um, I also wrote the presentation in order to better understand and highlight the manifold ways that homosexuality and transgender have been treated and represented in movies. Uh, we will start our cinematic journey in the silent era and travel all the way up to the present day. The main presentation will run for about 50 minutes, uh, followed by a period for question and discussion at the end. Um, I'll be showing stills and playing clips from a range of different movies throughout the presentation. So, the term queer cinema is frequently used by film critics and scholars when discussing LGBT characters and themes in movies. Prior to the 19th century, the word queer meant strange or peculiar before developing into a pejorative against those with same-sex desires and relationships. Beginning in the late 1980s, however, gay and lesbian activists began to reclaim the word as a deliberately and politically radical alternative to the more assimilationist branches of the LGBT community. Academic disciplines such as queer studies attempt to examine art, society and politics through the lens of sex, sexuality and sexual orientation. From these studies developed queer theory, which critiques the ways that certain sexual and gender expressions are normalized, while other expressions are marginalized or vilified. Cinema is an especially fascinating area for understanding queerness, as it functions as both a mode of presenting, enforcing or challenging these social norms, as well as dramatizing how this tension between identity and society affects people. Throughout this presentation, I will be using the term queer, but only in the sense used by the members of the LGBT plus community and advocates for LGBT plus rights. Ooh, another person? Hello, come on in. Um, one of the major challenges of tracing the history of queer cinema is that mainstream understandings of homosexuality and transgender has changed greatly over time and differs between cultures. Another challenge is that because queerness has been socially vilified and in many instances criminalized, queer people have often had to hide who they are and conform to heterosexual and cisgender norms. Accordingly, queer representation in cinema has, for much of its history, been repressed by censorship and only taken indirect, implicit or derogatory forms. Nevertheless, queer cinema stretches back almost as far as movies themselves. The oldest notable suggestion of homosexuality on screen appears in the 1895 American motion picture titled The Dixon Experimental Sound Film, commonly referred to in publications as the Gay Brothers. The film contains two men waltzing with one another. This scene is subject to interpretation, as same-sex dancing was not always recognised by 19th century spectators as queer and may have been intended as merely flamboyant or fanciful. Moreover, prior to the 20th century, 
The word gay typically referred to someone being happy or carefree rather than homosexual. However, according to film critic Parker Tyler, this scene in The Gay Brothers, quote, shocked audiences with its subversion of conventional male behavior. The first explicitly queer film was the 1990, sorry, the 1919 silent German film Different from the Others, directed by, by Richard Oswald. It portrays a successful violinist named Paul Cormer, who falls in love with one of his male students and is in turn blackmailed by a sleazy extortionist who threatens to expose the affair. Flashbacks show how Cormer became aware of his orientation and first tried to change it, then to understand it. Oswald made the film as a polemic against the then-current laws which made homosexuality a criminal offence in Germany. The film is notable for starring and being co-written by the renowned physician Magnus Hirschfeld, an outspoken advocate for sexual minorities. Hirschfeld developed the theory of sexual indeterminacy, which places homosexuality within a broad spectrum comprising heterosexuality, bisexuality and transgenderism. The film is also notable for scenes of a German drag club, which feature the earliest film footage of gay men and lesbians dancing. The film was initially widely distributed throughout Germany and the Netherlands, but after a year, authorities stepped in and banned public screenings. The Nazis destroyed the majority of prints and only one copy of the original film is known to still exist. You can watch it online though, if you're interested in watching it later. Different from the others was followed by two more landmark queer German silent films. Firstly, Pandora's Box, directed by Georges Wilhelm Pabst, which was released in 1929. It follows the sexually adventurous Lulu as she seduces both men and women. The film features a character named Countess Augusta Gershwitz, who becomes enamored with Lulu, dances the tango with her, and bucks conventional feminine dress by wearing a tuxedo. The second film, Girls in Uniform, directed by Leontine Sagan, was released in 1931. It depicts a teenage girl named Manuela who enrolls in a strict all-girls boarding school and falls in love with a compassionate teacher. The film was groundbreaking for featuring an all-female cast and for its sympathetic portrayal of a lesbian romance. When defending Manuela from the tyrannical headmistress, the teacher utters the immortal line, quote, what you call sin, I call the great spirit of love, which takes a thousand forms. Girls in Uniform was enormously successful with European audiences, generating large amounts of fan mail for the actors and prompting the production of several more German films about intimate female relationships. Early Hollywood filmmakers were generally less progressive in their depictions of queerness than their European counterparts. Most of the first male characters identified as gay in American cinema were depicted as flamboyant, fussy, and effeminate. According to film historian Shane Brown, they embodied the negative stereotype of the sissy or pansy. These were popular insults of the early 20th century leveled against boys or men who were perceived to lack traditional masculine attributes such as stoicism, physical strength, or aggression. Comic actors such as Eric Bloor, Edward Everett Horton, Frank Nelson, Franklin Pangborn, and Tyrell Davis were frequently cast as high-pitched waiters, tailors, hairdressers, and choreographers, which the heterosexual male protagonist happens to encounter in his efforts to climb the social ladder. For example, in this still from The Public Enemy, a tailor ogles and flirts with the ambitious gangster Tom Power. Film historian Gary Morris observes that while the sissy character generally served as comic relief, he was also quietly powerful. Quote, countering the hetero hero's often foolish attempts to get laid with an arsenal of arched eyebrows, rolling eyes, and finger wagging. End quote. Morris adds that, quote, sissies were a fixture of interwar cafe society, an instant signifier of everything sophisticated and pleasurable, if also transgressive, about modern urban culture. Several of Charlie Chaplin's films also contain queer images and themes. For example, in City Lights from 1931, Chaplin's character befriends a rich, drunken man at a party, and they are later shown waking up in the same bed. Later, the same man recognizes Chaplin in the street, 
embracing him warmly and kissing him on the mouth. In another scene, Chaplin enters a boxing match and is shown flirting with another boxer in the dressing room as the two men disrobe. In the 1915 film, A Woman, Chaplin is, de is depicted as dressing up as a woman and playing with the affections of male admirers. He even manages to trick two suitors to kiss one another. Indeed, several silent film stars, such as Fatty Arbuckle and Wallace Beery, often portrayed female characters in their films. In contrast, the 1930 film Morocco features a famous scene in which the main character, Amy Jolly, performs a song dressed in a man's tailcoat and kisses a female cabaret patron. Here is a clip from the film. Film critic Andrew Saris calls it, quote, a butch performance culminating in a mock seduction that pokes fun at Amy's two male suitors in the film. Her exaggerated impersonation of masculinity is also portrayed as adventurous, an act of bravado that subtly alters her conception of herself as a woman. By the mid-30s, the American film industry had introduced the Motion Picture Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code, the code was heavily influenced by religious and anti-communist advocates and was a set of guidelines for censoring content deemed immoral or injurious to society. Among other things, it banned the depiction of same-sex attraction or intimacy on film. It effectively marked the end of the sissy character and the beginning of homosexual depictions that were more reserved and buried within subtext. Screen adaptations of queer-themed stage plays typically remove direct references to homosexuality. For example, the original production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and The Children's Hour featured homosexual characters, while the film versions do not. Gay film characters during this period also came to be represented as villains or victims who commit crimes due to their homosexuality. This shift manifested in two new queer archetypes. Firstly, the killer queen exemplified by Waldo Lidecker from the 1944 film noir, Laura. According to Ed Morris, Waldo combined, quote, extreme sophistication, verbal command, and effeminate gestures with homicidal urges. Film historians also note the presence of killer queens in two Alfred Hitchcock films, Rope and Strangers on a Train. Meanwhile, the 1950 prison drama Caged contains what Morris calls a, quote, veritable catalogue of evil butch women, including vicious matron Evelyn Harper, whose repertoire includes S&M games like head shaving and a female crime boss 
who practically licks her lips when she sees new inmates walk by, end quote. These depictions were driven by the censorship of the production code, which was only willing to allow what it called sexual perversion if it was depicted in a negative manner and punished by the law. The second type of queer character prominent during the production code is what film scholar Ryan Powell calls the sad young man. Such characters depicted in films like Rebel Without a Cause, Tea and Sympathy, A Taste of Honey and Pink Narcissus were quiet, sensitive and implied to be attracted to male characters. However, their inability to act on these desires or the rejection of these desires results in heartbreak or death. These sad young men represent the so-called closeted gay people of the 1940s and 50s, whose true selves was condemned or repressed by the societies into which they were born. In the midst of the conservative production code era, emerged the joyfully subversive Billy Wilder comedy, Some Like It Hot. The film follows Joe and Jerry, two musicians who accidentally witness a crime and disguise themselves by dressing as women in order to escape from the mafia. Here is a clip from the film. is, quote, almost carnivalesque in its chaotic defiance of social mores and sexual norms. While the character of Jerry is not initially depicted as gay or transgender, the film increasingly depicts him as enjoying the attention of a male suitor and enjoying playing the role of a woman. In the final scene of the film, Jerry confesses to his male fiancé Osgood that, quote, I can't get married in your mother's dress. She and I were not built the same way. He then, he then goes on to list all of the reasons they can't get married, such as not being a natural blonde, being a heavy smoker, and not being able to have children, none of which bothers Osgood. Exasperated, Jerry finally pulls off the blonde wig and announces, You don't understand, Osgood. I'm a man. Osgood simply smiles and responds, Well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> as well as being funny, the scene implies a genial acceptance of homosexuality, cross-dressing, and perhaps even transgenderism, all at a time when LGBT plus identities were still pathologized as psychological illnesses. In 1962, the British epic Lawrence of Arabia was released. It dramatizes the life of the legendary army officer, diplomat, and writer T.E. Lawrence. 
The film is revolutionary in the history of queer cinema, not just for portraying Lawrence as a gay man, but also for implying a relationship between him and the Arab leader Serif Ali. Lawrence of Arabia was one of the first examples of an LGBT plus film that was a critical and commercial success, and which lacked the usual innuendo used to disguise the homosexual nature of its characters. Over time, the motion picture production code was liberalized and eventually replaced by a rating system. By the late 1960s, homosexuality became more prominent on screen, including in films such as Reflections in a Golden Eye, The Detective, The Legend of Lyra Clare, PJ, and The Sergeant. The Killing of Sister George was the first English language film to depict consenting adult homosexuals as protagonists. Unfortunately, many of the gay characters in these films still met tragic ends. 1969 was a watershed year for LGBT rights and representation. Because homosexuality was a criminal offence in the US, gay bars were often subject to violent police raids. However, after a raid on the Stonewall Inn in New York City on the 20th of June 1969, the patrons and members of the neighbourhood responded with a series of large, spontaneous street protests. The protesters demanded the right to live openly regarding their sexual orientation and without fear of being arrested. Within months, several newspapers were established to promote rights for gay men and lesbians, and within a year, the first gay pride marches took place in major American cities, and gay rights organizations were founded across the world. The gay and women's rights movements transformed the overall attitudes of Americans about human sexuality and gender roles. In response, Hollywood began to look at LGBT people as a possible consumer demographic. This attitude shift resulted in the release of The Boys in the Band in 1970, the first major American motion picture to revolve around gay characters. The film was directed by William Friedkin and depicts a group of gay male friends in their 30s who gather in a New York apartment to celebrate a birthday. Here is a clip from the film. Hey Bernard, do you remember those bands we used to do at Fire Island? Georgetown. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> <laughs> it's 
strong and put some water in it. It was fine, it's fine. Well, are you with the government then? No, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. Are you? Oh, I teach school. Taking you for an athlete of some sort. You look like you might play sports of some sort. Well, I'm no professional. I was on the basketball team in college, and I do play quite a bit of tennis. Oh, I play tennis too. It's a great game. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> 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 yes. Uh, what do you teach? Math. Math? Yeah, math. Oh, kind of makes you want to rush out of my life rule. <laughs> <laughs> While the film received general critical acclaim, it was perceived in different ways throughout the LGBT community. Some believe the film made great strides by placing gay men at the centre of the narrative and for depicting them as diverse and complex people. Others, however, thought it caricatured gay men as callous and self-pitying. Film critic Bill Weber describes the characters as being, quote, caught in the tragedy of the pre-liberation closet. Likewise, Edward Guthman calls The Boys in the Band a genuine period piece, but one that still has the power to sting. In one sense, it's aged surprisingly little. The language and physical gestures of camp are largely the same, both the attitudes of its characters and their self-lacerating vision of themselves. It belongs to another time, and that's a good thing, end quote. A remake of the film starring Jim Parsons was released in 2020. Another landmark mainstream LGBT film was released in 1975, directed by Sidney Lumet and based on a true story. The crime comedy Dog Day Afternoon follows a man named Sonny, played by Al Pacino, as he attempts to rob a bank in order to pay for the sex reassignment surgery of his trans girlfriend. After police arrive, the robbery turns into a hostage situation. Critics like Vincent Canby praised Pacino's performance, calling it, quote, brilliantly erratic and terribly touching. Andrew Saris calls the final phone conversation between Sonny and his girlfriend Leon the high point of the film uh, and describes the couple as, quote, two wounded creatures capable of an extraordinary <coughs> emotional audacity. The narrative of Dog Day Afternoon is deeply anti-authoritarian and captures the cynical and defiant mood of Americans in the wake of the Vietnam War and the Watergate scandal. This defiance evidently extends to established gender norms. Uh, another notable queer film from the 1970s is the romantic drama A Very Natural Thing. It follows a young ex-monk who leaves a monastery to become a public school teacher. He meets and starts dating another man, but struggles with his boyfriend's pr preference for an open relationship. The film is primarily a gay response to the 1970 hit film Love Story and contains similar scenes. Both films argue for an unconventional alternative to traditional marriage, despite a commitment. The film is notable for its optimistic ending, which was rare for gay characters in film up until that point. Earlier films were dominated by tales of gay people and lesbians being outcasts of society, mentally disturbed, or committing suicide, whereas later films were sadly dominated by the emergence of AIDS. A very natural thing captures a short period in time when gay liberation flourished and filmmakers could explore relationships in much the same way that heterosexual characters did. The slowly growing acceptance of homosexuality in film continued into the early 1980s. Unfortunately, this trend was interrupted by two new factors. Firstly, the rising political clout of Christian fundamentalist groups that were committed to enforcing a conservative, traditionalist social and economic agenda. Secondly, the emergence of the HIV AIDS pandemic. Ignorance about the disease and how it was spread was commonplace, and this ignorance led to widespread fear or disdain for gay men. As a result, Hollywood films that depicted homosexuality in a positive or complex way risked being boycotted by the conservative right-wing movement and were seen as potential commercial liabilities with general audiences. In a throwback to the production code, filmmakers some filmmakers returned to depicting homosexuality as an insult, comic relief, or as dangerous. For example, films like Cruising, Windows, and Dress to Kill portray LGBT people 
in an unrelentingly negative light. Several films in the James Bond franchise also employ the killer queen and evil butch stereotypes. Nevertheless, several notable progressive LGBT films were released during the 1980s. Firstly, Desert Hearts is an adaptation of the lesbian romance novel by Jane Rule. It tells the story of a university professor awaiting a divorce who finds her true self through a relationship with another more self-confident woman. The director Donna Deitch raised the funds for the film primarily from lesbian and feminist women in several American cities. In a 1991 interview with The Guardian, Deitch said that, quote, in San Francisco, I sold it as politics. In New York, as art. In LA, I convinced them that it would be a box office hit, <laughs> end quote. Deitch encountered many difficulties finding actresses who would portray lesbians, with many refusing to audition for the film. Patricia Charbonnet was the first actress to be cast, and when Deitch noticed the immediate chemistry between her and fellow actress Helen Shaver, she persuaded both of them to join the project. Released in 1985, it is one of the first wide-release films to present a positive portrayal of lesbian sexuality, as well as one of the first films to have a sex scene between two women seen by general audiences. While Desert Hearts received mixed reviews at the time of its release, Gene Siskel called it, quote, elegant traditional storytelling with, quote, complete characterizations and performances, a genuinely tender and erotic love scene and a sweetly satisfying finale. Adding, quote, the filmmaking and performances are so seamless that Desert Hearts may accomplish on film what hasn't been achieved in society, the desensationalizing of lesbianism, end quote. The film has since been, since been re-evaluated and recognised for the high quality of its direction and acting. Another important queer film of the decade was Kiss of the Spider Woman, which depicts the complex and intimate relationship between two men who share a prison cell in Brazil during the Brazilian military dictatorship. The film is based upon Manuel Puget's controversial and frequently banned novel of the same name. It deals with themes of loneliness, enclosure, betrayal, political revolution and repression, and fantasy as a means of escaping one's suffering. Finally, My Beautiful Laundrette is a comedy drama that follows Omar, a young Pakistani man, and his friendship and eventual romance with a street punk named Johnny. The two become the caretakers and business managers of a laundrette. The film is set in London during Margaret Thatcher's conservative prime ministership and reflects upon the complex and often comical relationship between members of the Pakistani and English communities. The film is a critical and commercial success and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay and a BAFTA Award for Best Film. In 2018, Kumail Nanjiani announced that he would be writing and starring in a serialized television adaptation of My Beautiful Laundrette, and in 2019, a stage adaptation was performed across England. The first American film about the AIDS pandemic and the ignorance and homophobia that it promoted was a 1986 independent film titled Parting Glances. It was followed shortly by a mainstream television movie, An Early Frost, and then by a mainstream Hollywood film called Longtime Companion. However, the most well-known film to depict AIDS and its devastating impact on gay men and the gay community didn't arrive until 1993. It was titled Philadelphia and stars Tom Hanks as Andrew, a young lawyer who was wrongfully dismissed from his job when his employers learn of his homosexuality and disease. Denzel Washington plays a homophobic but dedicated lawyer who represents Andrew in court and gradually develops respect and compassion for his client. Philadelphia was the first Hollywood big-budget, big-star film to tackle the issue of AIDS in the US and signaled a shift in cinema towards more realistic depictions of people in the LGBT community. Extras cast in the film included 53 people who were AIDS-infected at the time of shooting. By the end of 1994, 43 out of those 53 people had died, demonstrating the close link between fiction and fact. The 1990s heralded the beginning of new queer cinema, a movement characterized by the increasing, represent sorry, the increasing presence 
of LGBT stories and characters in mainstream and especially independent cinema, as well as the emergence of LGBT filmmakers, writers, and actors who did not feel the need to hide their sexual orientation or conform to heteronormative artistic sensibilities. The term new queer cinema was coined by B. Ruby Rich, who cites indie gay dramas uh, such as My Own Private Idaho, Swoon, Poison, and Sad Young Rebels, as well as the indie lesbian comedy The Watermelon Woman. Alongside these independent films, mainstream Hollywood increasingly began to treat homosexuality as a normal part of human sexuality and gay people as a minority group entitled to dignity and respect. Overt homophobia on screen became akin to overt racism or sexism, and leading stars were more eager to play a gay character. Drag portrayals made a comeback in many films in the 1990s, notably The Birdcage, starring Robin Williams and Nathan Lane, Mrs. Doubtfire, also starring Robin Williams, and Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, starring Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes, and John Leguizamo. Closer to home, 1994 marked the release of The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the most successful Australian queer film. The plot follows two drag queens and a transgender woman as they journey across the Australian outback from Sydney to Alice Springs in a tour bus, along the way encountering various groups and individuals. Here is a clip from the film. Take away, you take the lunch and tea, I'll take the ecstasy. Fuck off, you silly queer, I'm getting out of here. A desert holiday, hip, 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 hooray. Why not? Look, he's turned into a bloody good little performer. That's right, a bloody good little performer. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> I thought we were getting away from this shit. Two's company, three's a party, Bernadette, my sweet. We're implugging our curling ones and going bush, Fisher. Why would you possibly want to leave all this glamour for a hike into the middle of nowhere? You really want to know? Yes. Well... Ever since I was a lad, I've had this dream. A dream that I now, finally, have a chance to fulfill. And that is? To travel to the centre of Australia, climb King's Canyon, as a queen, in a full-length Gautier seat, heels and a tiara. Great. That's just what this country needs. A cock in a frock in a was a surprise hit in Australia and overseas, entertaining audiences with its wit and vivacity, and also engaging them with, with its warmth and nuanced portrayal of gay and trans people. Justifiably, it won the, the Academy Award for Best Costumes, and has since become a cult classic around the world. The 2000 Sydney Olympic Games featured a parade made up of images from the film, including a giant stiletto attached to a bus that extended from the stadium roof and a fleet of drag queens performing on the lawn. In 2006, the film was adapted into a successful stage musical. <clears throat> the millennium ended on a somber note with the release of Boys Don't Cry, 
The film is a dramatization of the real-life story of Brandon Tina, played in the film by Hilary Swank, an American trans man who attempts to find himself and love in Nebraska, but who also falls victim to a brutal hate crime. The film explores the nature of platonic and romantic relationships, the causes of violence against LGBT people, and the tensions between social classes, ethnicities, and genders in the American Midwest. When researching the events depicted in the film, uh, director Kimberly Pierce stated that she fell in love with the intensity of Brandon's, quote, desire to turn himself into a boy, the fact that he did it with no role models. The leap of imagination that this person took was completely overwhelming to me, end quote. However, she was careful not to mythologize Brandon or sensationalize his death and made sure to tell the story from his point of view and keep him as human as possible. Boys Don't Cry has been widely discussed and analysed by scholars and critics. For example, Roger Ebert describes the film as a romantic tragedy embedded in, the, in a working-class American setting, calling it, quote, Romeo and Juliet set in a Nebraska trailer park. Philosopher Rebecca Hanrahan argues that the question of identity is alluded to frequently throughout the film and that Pierce poses the nature of identification and self as the film's main question. Um, film theorist Vincent Hausman observes that Boys Don't Cry shares thematic concerns with other turn-of-the-century films, such as In the Company of Men, American Beauty and Fight Club, all of which raise the issue of masculinity in crisis. While likeable, decent gay characters were more common in mainstream Hollywood films, public displays of same-sex affection and intimacy were still generally taboo. In the 1990s, a character in a Hollywood film could be queer and sympathetic, but compared to heterosexual characters, they were rarely allowed any on-screen intimacy with their partner. The gay best friend archetype became a staple of 90s romantic comedy films, such as As Good As It Gets and My Best Friend's Wedding. Outside of independent films or films made for a gay audience, this trend did not really change in America until 2005. Directed by Ang Lee, Brokeback Mountain is a neo-Western romantic drama about the complex romantic relationship between two American cowboys. It takes place in the American West during the 1960s through to the 1980s. Here's a clip from the film. You got a better idea? I didn't want it. Why don't you 
Why don't you just let me be, huh? Because of you, Jack, that I'm like this. Mountain received a universal critical acclaim, especially for the direction of Ang Lee and the performances of Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. Despite this adulation, the film provoked controversy around the world. Many Middle Eastern countries banned screenings due to the illegal or taboo status of homosexuality in Islamic nations. The Chinese government also prevented Brokeback Mountain from being screened in cinemas, forcing viewers to seek out bootleg copies. Brokeback has since become Chinese slang for homosexuality. In Western countries, the film was criticized and picketed by Christian fundamentalists and right-wing conservatives. Many American viewers were also shocked by how the film combined homosexual desire and intimacy with the traditionally masculine figure of the cowboy and the nationalistic ethos of the Western frontier. Nevertheless, it was a huge success at the domestic and international box office. For the film's theatrical poster, Producer James Seamus took inspiration from James Cameron's Titanic, which depicted two star-crossed lovers. Brokeback Mountain was lauded as a landmark in LGBT cinema and credited for influencing several films and television shows featuring LGBT themes and characters. Researcher Stephen Paul Davies explains that as a result of the film's success, quote, most major film studios had been clamoring to get behind new gay-themed projects. Thanks to Brokeback, film financiers will continue to back scripts that don't simply rely on gay stereotypes. Davies cites the films Milk, Trans America, and I Love You, Philip Morris as examples of such films. In 2007, the book Beyond Brokeback was published. It samples the personal stories of how the film influenced LGBT people and helped them in their journeys of self-discovery and self-acceptance. 2010 marked the release of the comedy drama The Kids Are Alright. It is among the first mainstream movies to show a same-sex couple raising teenagers. Roger Ebert observes that while the film centres on a lesbian marriage, it is not about one. Quote, it is a film about marriage itself, an institution with challenges that are universal. End quote. The film won the Golden Globe for Best Comedy Film, while actors Julianne Moore Annette Benning and Mark Ruffalo were all nominated for BAFTA Awards. The 2010s are replete with critically acclaimed and commercially successful LGBT plus films, and it would be impossible to do justice to them all. They include coming of age romantic dramas such as Moonlight, Call Me By Your Name, Holding the Man and Blue is the Warmest Color. They also include coming of age comedies like Love, Simon and Booksmart, erotic thrillers like Black Swan and The Handmaiden, biographical trans-focused dramas like Dallas Buyers Club and The Danish Girl, period dramas like The Imitation Game, Carol, The Favourite, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and contemporary comedies like Life Partners and period comedies like Pride. To conclude this talk, I'd like to highlight one last film, the comedy drama Tangerine. It stars Katana Kiki Rodriguez as a volatile transgender sex worker who discovers that her boyfriend and pimp has been cheating on her and so she, tra she traverses the streets of Hollywood to confront him. She is accompanied by her more level-headed best friend, another transgender sex worker played by Maya Taylor. Here is a clip from the film. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> we supposed to share it? Yeah, we supposed to share it, bitch. I'm broke. You know you good. I've been great. You probably got just bitch. This estrogen has been kicking in. The only thing I've been broken down with these fucking arms. Everything else in my body looks good though, honey. So you try to look like the real thing. So I got some good news to tell you. What? I've been keeping a secret about me and Chester. Girl, <laughs> Woo! I'm 
know what it is. Oh. You're breaking up with him. Thank God. Because honey, if they're gonna be cheating on you like that. Wait, 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 what? Um, you you didn't know? How would I know? Girl, because everything that you've been hearing on the block about the girl that he's been with. Oh, you just tried seeing on the block. Who is she? Girl, she, she's some white fish, I don't know. That's it. And she don't mean real fish. Yeah, bitch, like a real fish, girl, like vagina and everything. I've been gone for 28 days, and you need to tell me that he's out here. She don't mean with fish. Yeah. Do I know her? I don't know. I just know that her name starts with a D. It's something like Danielle, Jessica, Dee. I don't know, girl. Give me your phone. It was shut off. I had to tell you your friend last month. I've been told you this was gonna happen. All men cheat. That's why they're called trade. Do them just as dirty as they do us. Out here, it is all about our hustle. And that's it. What are you plotting? The two stars of the film are transgender women and former sex workers in real life, and director Sean Baker first met them at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. They had no major acting experience prior to the filming, but won a range of awards, including Best Supporting and Best Breakthrough Actors. Along with employing non-actors, Tangerine was shot on location using the iPhone 5 smartphone and edited using Final Cut Pro. Film critic Justin Change calls the film, quote, an, ex an exuberantly raw and up-close portrait of one of Los Angeles's more distinctive sex trade subcultures, while Seth Malvin Romero describes it as, quote, an original, dazzling, and unforgettable portrayal of betrayal and friendship that easily beats any other film this year. That concludes this presentation on the history of LGBT cinema, or a very small sliver of cinema. Obviously, you can't cover every film, it's humongous. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I've popped some of the films mentioned uh, in the presentation on display here and over there. If you'd like to borrow any, feel free. Um, our streaming service, Canopy, also has a fantastic collection of LGBT films and documentary. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Thank you for listening.